You're listening to Fight in Progress. With your hosts and stress coaches, founder of Under the Shield, Susan Simmons, and TomTheBomb.com. Fight in Progress grapples with the internal and external struggles in the daily lives of our men and women in law enforcement, the armed forces, and first responders. Tackling the tough topics and supporting those who support us. We hear you, and we're here for you. Welcome back to Under the Shield Presents Fight in Progress. Good morning, Susan. Good morning, Tom and Joelle. We're all back here in the Chris Ferrara Podcast Studio, honoring our dear friend Chris, who was killed in the line of duty in April of 21, end of April of 21. And we also honored our friend who's over here misbehaving today, Joel, his his dad, who... Uh, <laughs> Oh, I thought you uh, no. were going to say just me. <laughs> uh, we, we ain't honoring you, Joel. Now, your yeah. dad, that's a whole different story. Yes, yes. Joel's dad, Tyler Britt, um, was lost. He was uh, died in the line of duty from COVID. It was the first COVID death that was uh, recognized as a line of duty, I think, January of 21. And uh, so we try to honor all of our fallen that we can, especially the ones that have been part of Under the Shield here, now yeah. that we have kind of rooked Joel in, although his employment is, is tenuous at best right now. <laughs> Pending. <laughs> People yeah. are probably wondering where this harshness is coming from. Oh, it's done in love, dear. It's just, <laughs> he's just been messing with me we're this having, morning. We're having some fun with the voice changer. Yes, we are. <laughs> well, he is. I'm not. It's at my expense, as it always is, but um, yeah, so cancer update. Chemo is the gift that keeps on giving. I now have an eye infection. You know, what more could you ask for? Careful to ask that question. Uh, well, it's at, it's making sure I'm getting my money's worth, people. That's right. That's all this is. It wants to say, you know, if you're going to do this for a whole year and whatever, okay, let's give you everything we got. We're going to throw a bunch of stuff at you. And guess what? I tell it to do. Kiss my ass, bring it up. Because I'm, I'm, I'm almost done. December 21st. Last treatment. Wow. So January 2024, you people better look out. Because <laughs> I am kicking ass and taking names, and we're going to do all kinds of stuff. I can't believe that it's, we're that close, though, already. I can't know? either. I'm, I'm telling you, some days it seems like a week. Some I days bet. it seems like about 10 years. <laughs> but we're getting through it. And yet yet all you cops out there going, dang, we thought it was going to take her out of here and she'd leave us alone. <laughs> the resource is still rolling. That's right. <laughs> now I'll probably get run over by a bus or something. <laughs> I said, that's when I'm going to be mad. <laughs> then it's going to get ugly. But anyway, yeah, so down to three treatments, December 21st. That's good news. Ring the bell. My son and daughter-in-law will be here and it's going to be a celebration and a Christmas to remember. That's right. Yep. So who do we have today, sir? So our guest today, he is uh, he's he's put in some time doing some stuff. He was in the Air Force, like me, security forces even. Mm -hmm. But he was an officer though. Um, so I have to. <laughs> oh, you know, I could say I, something. <laughs> are you supposed to be saluting? And Maybe I should standing at should. attention, or what are you supposed to be doing here? <laughs> um, and he uh, was a police officer. Um, he medically retired um, a few years ago, and he wrote a book. And so our guest today is Michael Sugru. 
and he wrote a book called Relent- Relentless Courage. Yes, and and I apologize, I have not had time to read it. Tom is our one who reads and <laughs> all of that stuff. I've got so many books that I need to read, but just doesn't seem to have time to do it. I don't know what you have time to do. I, I mean, you're either. busy always. So. I had somebody ask me that at 1030 last night. They're like, when do you rest? <laughs> when I'm dead, I'll get to, get around to it, I guess. But um, yeah, so welcome to the show, Michael. Happy to have you on here. We've been friends on Facebook for some time, and but never had the opportunity to speak or meet. And so we're really excited to have you on here. Well, thanks for having me on. It's an absolute pleasure. So happy to be here. Great. So tell us about you. That's a long story. Um, I'll try to give you a brief Reader's Digest version, but I'm originally from the San Francisco Bay Area. Mm-hmm. I was born and raised. Uh, my interest in law enforcement and the military actually started as a young child. Uh, my stepfather, who came into my life very early on, he was in law enforcement, and he was really my role model. I looked up to him. He was a great husband to my mother, a great father to myself and my brothers, and at eight years old, I actually became a police volunteer. And then fast forward in high school, I was a police explorer. And I knew I wanted to go into federal law enforcement initially. And so I knew that I needed some experience above just my college degree. So I ended up looking into the Air Force and I got a full scholarship through Sacramento State University. And I majored in criminal justice and I got security forces, which was my first choice. And that's basically, you know, law enforcement, anti-terrorism, force right. protection. Mm-hmm. Air-based uh, air, air defense. Base. Yeah. Exactly. And I, I, I loved it. I mean, I literally served all over the world. I was in Europe, South America, the Middle East, all over the United States. And my biggest regret today is actually getting out. I wish I would have stayed in on the reserve <laughs> side. Um, you know, I, I knew I was going to go into law enforcement, but I wish I had I'd kept doing both. Mm-hmm. And while in, I kind of got exposed to some different federal agencies, and I realized that that really wasn't a good fit for me. I wanted to be out there <laughs> on the street in a black and white and, you know, out there interacting with people every single day. I didn't want to be stuck in an office. You mean real so, police work is what you mean. Well, I, didn't that. I was married to DEA for 20, so when you said federal law enforcement, I'm thinking – well, apparently somebody got to him and he had a and he had a bright that. moment and went, oh yeah, that's not a good idea. Okay, so good for you. Exactly, exactly. So I uh, I actually got stationed back in California in 2003 at Travis Air Force Base, and while I was here, I actually started looking at local law enforcement agencies and I started applying to different ones. I got picked up by the Walnut Creek Police Department, which is about 20 minutes outside San Francisco. It's a medium-sized department. Meaning and I what? Loved it there. What, uh, what's medium um, size in California? Right. Well, you have to understand in the Bay Area, we have so many cities that are just compacted together. So for my agency, we had about 86, 89 sworn officers, about 125 um, employees. But when you look at the Bay Area, I mean, there's literally hundreds of police departments in a small geographic area. So hmm. for this area, it's considered medium size. Hmm. Gotcha. But you know, but, you know, if you look at like San Jose PD, they've got thousands of officers, San Francisco PD, LAPD. Those are really huge departments. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, much smaller than that. Nice city, um, low crime rate, very affluent, you know, a destination for shopping and dining and whatnot. And I served a bunch of different assignments um, from just regular patrol officer. I was an FTO, field training officer. I was an in-house detective undercover for a couple of years on a state drug task force. So 
I did get my DEA kind of experience <laughs> through the state somehow. That explains the twitch. And let me clarify so I don't tick off our whole federal audience that might be out there. I do know there are federal agents that do actually do real law enforcement work. I just think <laughs> just because we got divorced, it is not about bitterness with the feds, but I just know that there are there is one particular organization that seems to be in the news a lot these days that really doesn't do a whole lot of what you'd call real law enforcement but it ain't DEA yeah. <laughs> so I just want to clarify that so I don't get nasty emails <laughs> probably from my exactly. ex-husband <laughs> right yeah and I'm, I'm a big supporter of federal law enforcement too so I want people to know the same um, and I and honestly my time undercover was the best time of my career I mean I look back on it and it was just phenomenal I mean you know, unfortunately, there was a abrupt end to that, which I won't go into great detail. It's in the book, but I'll say that my boss ended up in federal prison. Wow! Um, he actually just got out about a year ago. Wow. So uh, my undercover career got cut short, unfortunately, and then I got pulled back inside my department, and I was doing in-house investigations. And I think because of that, good or bad or indifferent because I was getting more face time, I got promoted to sergeant, mm -hmm. and then I was a patrol sergeant on the streets. And my real story begins in 2012, the end of 2012, I was a brand new sergeant. I was involved in a very tragic on-duty incident that forever changed my life, it changed my path, and eventually it led me a downward spiral to where I didn't wanna be here anymore. And I suffered in silence for four years, mm -hmm. literally wanting to die. And so I got the strength and courage to ask for help. And, and that's why I'm here today is because I'm on a whole new mission in life now. My mission is to break this stigma when it comes to talking about mental health, when it talks you know, about the humanity of what it is that we see and deal with every single day. Sure. And so that's my purpose. And, and life is all about purpose. And my purpose today is, is smashing the stigma around mental health. Yeah, our our phrase here is when you can find purpose in your pain, there's healing. And Absolutely. That's that's the big thing. We are big on being on the proactive front end of things. We believe academies are not preparing people for the aftermath of things, and it's more the aftermath. A lot of times there are actually the innocent people and victims and things that you deal with more so than, say, an actual having to shoot someone that can be impactful. And I wrote a theory 31 years ago called the Simmons Theory of the Psychological Garbage Can. And we'll make sure we send that to him in an email yeah. so he can see what that is. The audience is like, here she goes again. Don't talk about that again. <laughs> but that's what all of our training and our stress coaching and everything surrounds that garbage can theory. Absolutely. So let's back up a little bit towards when you're in the Air Force. Um, can you explain what the Ravens are? Yeah, so the Ravens is a subset of security forces. Um, basically, the whole concept of Ravens is to provide direct security and protection for air crews and aircraft when they're in hostile areas or hostile zones. And these are typically areas that don't have embedded physical security or security forces to protect okay. them. And so that's really how it got started. And also they also do things like air marshal duties. Sure. Um, there's a lot of, of training involving like cross-cultural communication, um, advanced defensive tactics. You know, the course itself was extremely strenuous and there is a high washout rate. And for me, 
as soon as I learned about the program, it's, it's something that I wanted to do. And I felt as a leader, especially as a commissioned officer, I wanted to lead by example. Mm -hmm. And so when I went through this course, I was only, I think one of three actual commissioned officers that were in it, the rest were enlisted. And um, I got to tell you, I got the crap beat out of me because <laughs> I was the, the class leader. And of course, all the instructors are enlisted. And, uh, oh, oh, what a golden <laughs> opportunity. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah actually, I, <laughs> I got cracked ribs. I mean, it was, wow. it was crazy. But when I look back now, um, to me, it's one of my proudest achievements. And when you go through the program, you actually get assigned a, a number and it's your number forever. And it's, <laughs> It's chronological, it's in order, except for the first hundred numbers they reserve for instructors and command staff within security forces that were Ravens. But after that, and so my number is 1173. Oh, wow. And I think up to now, they're only up to about 3,200 Ravens. Wow. And this program has been around for over 20 years. And so when you think about that, and you think about how many people are in the Air Force or how many security forces members have served, right. hmm. and you look at today, you know, over 20 years later, and there's only 3,200 people that have been through the actual Raven program. Yeah, I'm the stress coach at Luke for the 56 security forces there and have never even heard the term. Now right. i got to go back and talk to some people and go, all right, you're holding out on me. But, you know, I see I see visions of a new program in law enforcement around here <laughs> where chiefs and assistant chiefs and commanders have to play that role uh, yeah, yeah, for the yeah, so uh, that the uh, troops uh, can beat the crap out of them. One hundred percent, and they get to use tasers. No red man suits. Uh, my wooden red man stick will be effective. Um, simunition. Sure, that could be fun. I mean, I would say live rounds, but that would probably get no. me in prison. But right. hey. pepper spray to the eyes. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we should start that program. Yeah, <laughs> thank you for the idea. <laughs> You, you talk about that program a little bit in your book, and I was like, man, I've never heard of that. And I was in the military, but, of course, it was a long time ago when I was Tread in, so. lightly, Tom. Tread lightly. <laughs> so, yeah, that's why I was curious, just to kind of get your Now you're sorry they didn't have it. Uh, right, yeah. I, thought you that, I would have definitely tried to do that, that's at, for sure. Especially when you knew there were officers in there that... Uh, sure. Yeah, right. absolutely. Yeah. I hear you. <laughs> My Marine son would like to do that kind of thing also. So, yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> so... Uh, Where's, where was the best place that you were stationed at while in the Air Force? What do you think? Uh, Ramstein, Germany. Yeah. So it was mm -hmm. phenomenal. I lived off base in Launstuhl. You know, I had my own place. I think I traveled to like 32 different countries. Yeah. Um, literally, there was a train station three blocks from my house. <laughs> and it was like a, a three-hour ride to uh, Paris. You know, my family, a lot of my family is still in Ireland. So I got to go to Ireland three different times and... Just my, my biggest regret is I didn't travel more. Yeah. You know, I should have yep. taken more advantage of that. But that's just, man, I, I so wish I could go back and, and relive that experience because it was just phenomenal. Yeah, 2006, I had the honor of going over to Garmisch at Edelweiss oh, yeah. and training all the Air Force um, chaplains and chaplain assistants in Europe uh, in CISM, um, basically, and then got to go to Lake and Heath, and that was not quite as fun experience <laughs> as Garmish was. That was that was a little more uh, trying, let's just say. <laughs> but yeah, loved Garmish and went over to um, Austria, and yeah, it's beautiful. I'd love to go back sometime. 
Absolutely. Likewise, I need to go back. I've still got some friends stationed over there, so I need to hit them up and, and take advantage of that. Well, go to Edelweiss if you get a chance because, you know, it's a military R&R right at the base of where they run the World Cup. We were there a oh, week wow. after the World Cup. It was January, snow everywhere. It was absolutely mm. amazing. Awesome. I'll definitely have to check that out. Yes. <laughs> so how long were you in the Air Force? Uh, about six and a half years active duty. Okay. And then come out and start applying to law enforcement. Well, actually, I was still in the Air Force. So um, when I started the police academy, I was on use, use or lose, leave. So mm -hmm. I was technically still an active duty captain. I was going through the police academy. And um, another funny story there, because my drill instructor at the academy was a, a enlisted Marine. And when he found out I was an Air Force captain. <laughs> again, paid another price. You know, I'm seeing a theme here. Yeah, so. Tell me that's in the book, because I got a Marine, a son who was uh, infantry, 0311, made it to corporal. Yeah, he might like to read that part of the book. <laughs> so I didn't have it easy, let's just say. So I had to earn my way each step. So. And, I, and I have no doubt that you did and showed him that the Air Force, they're not all like Tom and, and enjoy, you know, having your covers turned back and, right. and chocolate put on your pillow. And there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I can give him a hard time because his son-in-law just got out of the Marine Corps career. Yeah. yeah, career Marine. So I'm sure it's nothing he hadn't already heard a million times. <laughs> well, you know what's funny is I equated to this. So, you know, cops, we used to make fun of the firefighters, but now that I'm retired, I wish I would have been a firefighter. That's right. So I guarantee you that, you know, these Marine guys, Army guys, as much as they want to make fun of the Air Force, yep. they're wishing the same thing. They're every, like, you know what? Every time they I went to a, Air Force. Yeah, every time they came to an Air Force base, they were like, God, man, I sure screwed up. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah. there's a funny story that was told on our show one time about the conversation about going to Florence which era, they meant Arizona, and the Air Force guys thought they were talking about Florence. Italy. Italy. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and they are not even, they aren't even on the same planet, no. I don't think. <laughs> no, very different. <laughs> oh, man. So were you looking for a small agency? Is that really what you wanted? Was that medium size there in that area? Or you looked all over the country for a law enforcement job? No, so I, I wanted to be specifically in the San Francisco Bay Area. And so when I applied, I applied to Sacramento PD, which is a little bit bigger. Um, I applied to Richmond PD, which is where my father worked. And that's really where I wanted to work. Um, mm -hmm. I also applied to, like, the sheriff's department and the county ended working. And a couple things happened. So Richmond actually offered me a job, but the academy was going to be starting later. But then I started realizing that as much as I wanted to work there, I felt like I'd always be in the shadow of my father because, mm -hmm. you know, my father was such a great man and such a great police officer. And honestly, even today, I don't think I was half the cop that he was. I mean, he was literally a legend. And, and the things that he did, the things he accomplished, and, you know, he cared so much about his people. He was such a great leader. And so um, I ended up choosing Walnut Creek because – other than that offer, it was the second offer that came in, and I figured, you know what, um, it's it's a good agency, it's a good reputation. Most of the officers there at the time, you had to have a bachelor's degree. Um, officers even have their master's degree there, so it, it really had a very good um, reputation as far as being educated, being squared away investigative-wise, and there was a lot of opportunity as well. So um, it just worked out, you know. What county was that that you worked in? 
Um, that's Contra Costa County. Okay. Now, I taught over there for one of the counties in Northern California, and chemo brain is real. Um, I prove it yes. on a daily basis, although the Marine just says, no, Mom, it's just plain old dementia. Um, <laughs> and, and I cannot remember. I know it started with an S. I think it was two words. Is it Solano? Nope. Solano County? No. I think it was two words. Um, mm. it, it'll eventually Stanislaw? come. Stanislaw? Mm-mm. It'll eventually come to me. I'll find it. But yeah, but okay. had a great okay. time teaching over there. That was it was an awesome bunch of people. Awesome. Yeah, it's a huge county. The College Cost County is huge. I mean, tons of agencies and that's actually where I worked undercover as well. So my drug task force was assigned to Contra Costa County. Beautiful, beautiful part of the world too. It was um it was nice to leave the dry desert part and actually see like real green trees. I mean <laughs> Like real yes. green yeah, trees, not right. just look way up in the sky to see a little bit of green on a palm <laughs> somewhere. It was uh, felt a little bit more like home. Obviously, I'm not from San Francisco. From this accent, you can tell this is not this is not that. <laughs> it ain't Arizona either, honey. <laughs> and I'll say bless your heart a lot. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, I'll I'll figure out which one it was. But so, what were things in the book, Tom, that really kind of jumped out at you? Um, you know, I, I, you said that um, you had a, a supervisor that ended up going to prison. And I don't remember that part in the book for some reason, but I know that was when you were in your undercover stuff. Uh, and I always like to ask about the undercover stuff because that's one thing I didn't do. My brother-in-law worked for the same uh, police department I did, and he got into narcotics and stayed there forever. Um, but what was, what was it about the undercover stuff lifestyle that you enjoyed so much? You know, I'd say, first of all, the camaraderie, because it was a lot smaller unit. And so our task force had officers from all different agencies within the county. And, you know, we're doing operations almost every single day. Like some days we were doing two to three hard entries. And when I say hard entries, I mean like SWAT style entries into homes, you know, people on search warrants, Mm -hmm. probation searches, parole searches. We were doing surveillance together. And so there's a lot more teamwork. Yeah. You know, a lot more bonding that goes on. And so, you know, we worked hard, but we also played hard. And when I was at my agency, even though, you know, it's medium sized agency, it seemed like a lot more cutthroat, a lot more competitive. Sure. Like everyone was out for themselves. themselves. <laughs> sure. You know, like, you know, as soon as that next assignment came open or the next promotion came open, whereas on this task force, it wasn't like that. It was mm-hmm. like everyone was pitching in, everyone was doing their part. Um, you know, of course, everybody had egos, right? But it really wasn't a competition. It was really a true team environment, and that combined with just the constant adrenaline rush. <laughs> I mean, that that adrenaline rush is like nothing else out there. Oh, yeah. You know, um, and whether, like I said, it's doing the entries or it's doing surveillance, if it's doing buys or meeting with informants, and it's just the scale of the things we did too was much larger. I mean, sure. we worked on federal cases we did wiretap investigations i was gonna ask you how you like uh, the wiretaps and the pin register stuff isn't that fun <laughs> so no i know it's not fun uh, it's boring as hell uh, but you get paid a lot of overtime and so yeah you know they, they make the wire sound all sexy and awesome but in reality it's like you know hundreds if not thousands of hours of listening to boring conversations hoping you're going to get that one yep. key conversation that you need. So, yeah, it's. And what years were you doing that? 
So I was undercover 2009 to 2011. So you had computers and things. See, I'm, I'm from the era where I'd walk into my ex's office and it would be a room like this and it'd be just lines drawn and names. And, and I'm like, good gosh, that that's confusing. But yeah, computers made life a whole lot easier when those things started coming yeah, around. That. Yeah. Yes, yes. So then after narcotics, you get pulled back into patrol division, right? I did, unfortunately. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> yeah, so, um, you know, my plan was like your friend that you mentioned. I wanted to do the undercover gig as long as I could. Yeah. And it was supposed to be at least a five-year assignment. Some <laughs> guys or gals can stretch that into six or seven years. That's I hard. I even contemplated at the time. It is hard. And um, I look back when I did it. You know, I was fairly newly married. Uh, my daughter was actually born when I was undercover. Mm. And so, yeah, that made it very difficult on the home life. Yeah. And unfortunately, back then, I was more focused on the career and the job mm -hmm. than I was on my family. And that's one of my you know, biggest mistakes, one of my biggest learning points of what really matters. You know, the career is just a job. Yeah. And as much as it, it was a calling for me and as much as I cared about it and I, I gave 110% every single day you know what matters most is our loved ones right. whether it's our spouse our partners our children yep. and I have a beautiful daughter I mean unfortunately I lost my marriage through all of this mm -hmm. but my relationship today with my daughter is better than it ever has been and I'm so grateful that I really I have the second chance I have the second opportunity sure. to have this this phenomenal relationship with her and I know if I was still working if I was still undercover I wouldn't have that relationship. Right. I'd still be so focused on my career and on the things that really don't matter. And right. you know, one of the things, and I do have to brag on DEA, and I don't know how long they did it or whatever, but I think one of the saving graces for us, even though I had known him since seventh grade and started dating in the ninth grade, was when he was right at the hiring, we knew he was he was getting the job, but they allowed us a DEA spouse to actually talk to me about what this lifestyle was going to be like. And I think that's an area law enforcement just really drops the ball still with all this teaching, keep personal and professional separate crap that they still teach in academies. But it takes a special person uh, to be the spouse of law enforcement and then to be the spouse of law enforcement that does undercover work. Sure. You got to have a sense of humor like nobody else has got, but you got to have that almost that training up front of what it's going to look like because it was not going to be Miami Vice. Uh, you know, we weren't going to be dancing on the bow of a boat after he'd shot 10 people and drove a Maserati home with a <laughs> pet alligator named Elvis, you know. And right. I, I don't think we do enough of that. And that's something that has to change. I agree. But that's the beautiful thing about this book, Relentless Courage, because um, this book, it's not only for first responders or military members. It's definitely for their family members and their loved ones. And I can't tell you. How many times I've heard from readers and listeners who they read or listen to it first and then they have their spouse or their partner read or listen to it. And it opens up this door to have these conversations that they've never had to talk about these issues that they've never even thought about or discussed together. And so this book, you know, it's saving careers, um, it's saving relationships, but it's absolutely saving lives. And I think it should be mandatory reading for not just all officers, not all just you know, people in the training academies, but it should also be given to their partners and their spouses while these people are going through the police academies or the fire academies. Um, but it's it's absolutely essential reading for all. 
Yeah, it was a good book. I I really enjoyed how um, Doc Springer uh, also chimed in and gave her uh, kind of like recaps of you know after each chapter was over. That was that was very insightful. She's she actually um, sounds like she's a psychologist, a psychiatrist that has the pulse on. Um, like what the law enforcement first responders go through on that accumulated uh, effect of things. And she's a psychiatrist or psychologist? She's a clinical psychologist. Psychologist. Okay. Okay. And was she in law enforcement prior to becoming that or just worked in the industry? No. So she, she phenomenal, phenomenal woman, but, and she's the one that made this whole book happen. And, and I can tell you the backstory on that, but Dr. Springer spent most her career working with Veterans Affairs and also with TAPS, Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors. So she's worked with countless combat veterans with their families, their loved ones and first responders. So she truly is a culturally competent clinician. Mm -hmm. She truly understands us. She understands the uniqueness of what we do and what we see. And so, you know, what makes this book and this project so special, and I don't know of anything else out there like it, is that Every chapter, it's broken into two parts. And the first part is my story told in my voice going all the way back to childhood until present day. But then Doc Springer comes in every single chapter and she breaks everything down in very simple terms so that anybody will understand it, even if you have no background whatsoever in law enforcement or the military. But you're going to actually see the human side behind the badge and behind the uniform. Right. And, and really... The, the cool thing about this whole thing is it's living proof of what can be done between a culturally competent clinician and a first responder. It shows what's possible when we come together and try to overcome post-traumatic stress injury. Mm -hmm. It shows that it's possible to come out the other side of this. And that's, and what that's I... the thing is that... Go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Finch. The thing is, this is an injury. Mm -hmm. 100%. People, you know... We, Doc Springer and I advocate for injury versus disorder because mm -hmm. disorder has a very negative connotation. Well, it implies and permanent. Fact, it does. And the fact is that with an injury, you can get better. You yes. can heal. You can overcome it. You may never be the same person before that injury, but you can get better. And I'm living proof that you can do that. And Absolutely. we talk about that healing journey. Mm -hmm. And we talk about options and different things that you can do to overcome this. Yeah. See, and I think that's like the big difference with Under the Shield because you understand what the officers and firefighters and military go through. You you have a perfect understanding of it, and you don't overreact to things. You can't. Right. And it's it just your approach is so common sense and makes sense, and, and it works. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I think you're so successful. Yeah, we've said for as long as I started this company in 92 and the term post-traumatic stress disorder came out, we said, no, that, that makes victims out of people. It implies permanent. You got to medicate them. This is a big problem with the military now and the VA, but it, it's an yes. injury. And, and again, the, the injury, when it can have a purpose to it, which is what all of our stress coaches do, they've all been on the couch. And as far as we know, we're the only ones who do provide mental wellness services anonymously because confidential and anonymous are two different things. And that's the thing. We, we promote a, a three-tiered approach, peer support, stress coaches, and licensed mental health. And everybody has their place. 
therapist. But the problem is there's so much push. And, yeah, we you're not going to change the culture of law enforcement with regards to mental health as long as their jobs are jeopardized. And that's the hard part. There's so much fear there, and perception mm-hmm. is people's reality. But we've got to change this disorder concept that this is something that you're just stuck with it the rest of your life because <laughs> then we would all – everybody would have PTSD, every one of us, from, you know, heck, a wreck to somebody bullying you in junior high. Um, and it's time for this stuff to change. And sadly, we see too many on the license side here that want to label so they can get them on the right axis for diagnosing and payment and that stuff. And I said, y'all are crazy, but you're not mentally ill, and there is a difference. The mental Absolutely. illness component has to be wiped out of this. You've been MMPI to death, <laughs> but you're all crazy. There, And I'm even crazier because look what I do. I was married to one of y'all for 20 years, <laughs> and then I hang out with you seven days a week. But, yeah, we're we're right in that same vein with you, absolutely 100%. So you had a uh, traumatic event uh, that you experienced in after you came back and was on patrol, right? And you're a sergeant at that time. Yeah, well, I've had countless traumatic events, right? But, but yeah, the one, one, one in you're particular, talking about a specific one. Yeah, that's correct. So how I guess did that affect you uh, differently than what you expected, and how so? I look at that more as the tipping point. Um, I look at it as that prior to that incident, and it was a fatal officer-involved shooting. You know, right. basically it was a man with a butcher knife that was trying to kill a couple inside a condominium, and then that person tried to kill myself and my officers. And literally up to that point, and I talk about some of these in the book, you know, I had experienced, I mean, numerous, you know, critical incidents right. and things that I just, I never talked about. I never addressed. I just sucked it up. Mm-hmm. And I equate it to kind of like a jar. My jar was filling up and it got to the point where when that shooting happened, it caused my jar to kind of overflow. And so um, I don't necessarily think it was just that incident itself, but I think it was the combination of everything involved. Right. And even with that, you know, things like admin betrayal or institutional betrayal or sure. moral injury, <laughs> things, things that we talk about in this book. And so yeah. When the shooting happened, you know, a lot of things happened after that shooting. And one of those things was we got sued right away. You know, I ended up enduring a four-year federal lawsuit where I ended up being a defendant in federal court in San Francisco, one of the worst places (laughs) you can imagine as as a cop to be on trial. And, um, you know, the thing is, is that in in my marriage and my relationship with my wife at the time, and one of my biggest mistakes was that when I started my law enforcement career, I told myself I'd never bring the job home. Mm-hmm. I would never talk about work because I thought in that way I was protecting my family. Sure. sure. But I was doing the polar opposite. What yeah. I was doing was I was pushing my family away from me. Yep. And when this big incident happened, I didn't have them to lean on because I didn't form that healthy relationship of constant communication of what was going on with me, what was going on with work. You know, when I came home pissed off or in a bad mood, my wife was walking on eggshells because sure. she thought it was her. Exactly. That's it. What she didn't realize it was something horrific that I saw that day. And so, unfortunately for me, again, another mistake that I made was that when the shooting happened, I didn't try to lean on her. I didn't mm-hmm. try to open up to her. And I didn't have at that time any kind of trusted relationships with therapists or clinicians or counselors or even clergy members 
um, or even peer support members. You know, we had a peer support program, but honestly, the people on the team were just like nice, likable people. <laughs> they weren't, you know, cops, cops, and they definitely weren't people that I trusted to where right. I could fully open up about what was going on. And sure. so, um, and, and another thing is that this was gradual, you know, when the shooting happened, there were some things I noticed right away. Like I noticed when I got home that day after being up for many hours and being interviewed, I felt some detachment. I felt like something was off, you know, and then I started having constant nightmares mm -hmm. and then I wasn't sleeping. And then I started trying to drink more to kind of self-medicate mm -hmm. to get myself to pass out. And that, as we know, only makes things much worse. Right. And so it was, it was this, you know, very gradual process where I'm having relationship issues I'm having work issues. I'm having all these internal struggles and thoughts that I don't feel comfortable talking about that, you know, and the thing is that my agency, there hadn't been an officer involved shooting the entire time I was there. Wow. And my shooting happened when I was eight years on at my agency. And I think the last one they had was probably like 14 years, 15 years um, before my shooting. And so, so they didn't have a clue what to do. I, I guarantee you, they didn't really have a protocol for it, did they? Well, no, they did. I mean, I mean I'm talking about for you, not, 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 I'm not talking about tactically and that kind of stuff, but as far as the person that's in the shooting, because you really didn't have anybody that you could even talk to that had done it. True. No, that, that's, that's very true. You know, we had everything else. We had a contracted clinician, we had peer support, we had all these great things. But the thing is, if nobody uses those things, if nobody believes them, they're completely useless. Right. You know, you're just, you're checking a box on paper to say, yeah, we've got all these things. Okay, chief, but who's actually using your program? <laughs> and, and when you say, well, I don't know, or nobody's using it, we got a problem, yeah. right? Uh -huh. and, and that's the reality of today is that we have all these agencies across the nation and some people are using them, but many aren't. And mm -hmm. we got to get to the point where people trust these programs. They know it's not going to end their career. They know they can seek out help and get better and they can return to the job or return to work. And sure. that's what I firmly believe in is that I waited too long. That's my problem. I waited four years of suffering and silence, whereas if you get help sooner than later, that mm -hmm. means you can get better sooner and you can return yeah. to work. And I, and I think if we normalize these conversations, it doesn't have to be this big critical incident debrief and with clinicians and therapists. I mean, literally it comes down to having a conversation with a peer that you trust yep. who's been through similar things and has come out healthy the other side. That's what we need. Absolutely. All yeah. of our stress coaches, to be a stress coach with us, we don't care about education. I got my master's in counseling and went, whoops, that was an expensive mistake. Um, <laughs> I didn't sit for licensure because I said I'm not going to be a mandated reporter. But all of our stress coaches, you have to have done it, been married to it, raised by it, or given birth to it. Because you have to have Absolutely. experience in the lifestyle. And like what you were talking about, about you were trying to protect your family, that's still being taught in academies, which is creating the divorces. We see it every yes. week. And it's admirable, but the mood comes home, and then the fights start, and it, it just spirals. And it is so—the frustrating part, I think, for all of us at Under the Shield is— it's so easy to reduce so much of this with proper training at the front end, but a spouse needs to be part of that training because I can stand up there and talk about it, how in, in my ex and I are good friends and we've talked about this. 
he, you know, he drank too much the first nine years, had to go to rehab, all of the things that we experienced. But I didn't know who to call that wouldn't cost him his career. And, it, you know, and then it just goes from bad to worse. And if it's not safe to walk in and say, hi, I'm Joe, even if their name's Bob. And Susan, I was sitting in your driveway with a gun in my mouth for 10 minutes and then decided not to pull the trigger because I knew it'd piss you off if I did it in your driveway, <laughs> which is literally a case that has happened. And I go, yeah, good call. Um, but they've got to have that freedom to say yes and somebody not go, well, give me your guns and let me back a U-Haul up at your house and empty your three safes and uh, that kind of like they can't go buy another one <laughs> or borrow a friend. Yes. And that's one of the worst things you can do. And, and Doc Springer Absolutely. actually talks about that specific thing in her book and her other book, Warrior. But, you know, taking a, a weapon away from a military member or especially a, a law enforcement officer, yeah. that's not the answer. That's not the solution. And, and like I said, that's one of the worst things you could actually yeah. do. Have you heard, though, the so-called guru experts that I've heard over the 30 years? And they're actually testifying before Congress. And they are saying to lower suicides in law enforcement, don't let officers take their guns home with them. And if they have to, tell them not to leave it sitting out on a counter where they might impulsively walk by and use it. I, I've never seen bigger insults. But this is what Congress that's absolutely moronic. It that's is absolutely moronic. And I this mean, is, that's this is what Congress is hearing. This is what the IECP is hearing. This is what all these large organizations are hearing. And I'm going, gang, this ain't this ain't the problem. The gun is not the problem. Yeah. And now what we're seeing even more than the person walking in saying I'm I want to do it is now they're planning their line of duty deaths. Well, that's what I talk about in my my book, actually, and that's a phenomenon where um, initially I never had an active plan to kill myself, but I did purposely put myself in dangerous situations, mm -hmm. hoping that I died in the line of duty. Yep. And um, Doc Springer and I talk about this in the book, but I had this since my shooting happened, I had this constant fear of dying and my daughter not knowing who I was and how much I loved her. But at the same time, I wanted to die. Mm -hmm. And people don't really understand that concept, how you can have both at the same time. And sure. Doc actually explains it better than I am right now, but she, she goes into detail about this phenomenon. But, you know, that's the other thing is you ask yourself, like, how many, you know, patrol cars into a tree where the officer's not wearing their seatbelt mm -hmm. or into a sound wall? Is that a tragic accident or right. is it a suicide? And Yep. The answer is it's, bo it's both. You know, sure. Sometimes it is a tragic accident, but also it can be a suicide that's covered up. 100%. Um, you know, it, and, and the thing is, you know, we know that if we die in the line of duty and it's considered a line of duty death, our family members are taken care of right. that's it. financially. They've got support. And that was my mindset. I said, you know what? I'm not going to kill myself, but if I die at work, my daughter's always going to know who her dad was. They're not going to let her forget me. Mm -hmm. They're going to be taken care of financially for the rest of their life. And they don't have to suffer anymore. They don't have to put up with my bullshit. Sure. You know, <laughs> sure. I don't have to suffer anymore. Yeah. And, and that's that's the real harsh reality right there. And, I, and I'm glad you brought that up because that is not talked about enough. Right. Well, and, and that's you know, I mean, they're literally coming to us and saying I, I had one come off the border and he said, I planned it. He said, I stopped a vehicle where I knew there'd be a lot of trucks. And he said, walked up, got driver's license registration, walking back to my car. 
He said, I pulled my wallet out and pulled my children's picture out because I wanted that to be the last thing I saw before I tripped and fell, whatever he was going to do in front of an 18-wheeler. And he said, I put the picture back in my wallet. And I stopped and I said, why did you do that? And he said, I didn't want somebody to find it and wonder why that would be out floating around. And I thought, honey, you get run over by an 18-wheeler. <laughs> Everything in your wallet is going to be out. But what it told me where he was cognitively. And he said, and right as he's yes. about to do it, his kid's faces popped in front of his head. And he immediately called a friend who referred him to me, and he drove, what is it, probably three hours up from the border. And I cleared my calendar, and he sat on my couch for almost six hours, and we worked through it. And, again, these are things we're hearing. And it's funny because I'll ask an officer, are you thinking about killing yourself? No, no, Susan, I've never been suicidal. And I go, (laughs) how many times have you been in a pursuit, driven fast, no seatbelt on, and thought, "Eh, if it happens today— Okay, if it doesn't, I live another day to do it again or go in high risk without a vest on. And then they start going, is that me suicidal? And I said, it's you basically saying, if I die, okay. If I don't die, I live another day. Sure, that is a suicidal thought in this industry, 100%. And it wakes them up. It does. And you are suicide numbers as high as they are because suicide – is the number one killer of all first responders, mm-hmm. all military members. But the numbers are greatly underreported. Absolutely. Yeah. And then you now, you add in these, you know, on-duty deaths that are actually suicides. I mean, mm-hmm. the real numbers are just, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. I mean, absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah, I was in Canada with Grossman years ago, and, and it, we were there, I know, in November, and I told him, I, I made that prediction. I said, we're going to see line-of-duty death go um, go. We're going to see suicide, gun and mouth, pull trigger, come down, but we're going to see line of duty death go up. And he kind of looked at me like Dave has a way of looking at me like, really, Susan? He said, let me think about it. And he called me the next February, and he said, you're owned to something, and you're the only person talking about it. And at that time, I had had three in the office, state, fed, and county at different times, and all three said, yes, I want to kill myself, but you'll never know it. And they described exactly what this officer did. That year, line of duty deaths from January to March went up 1,200%. Most were single car accidents, especially back in the Northeast where, oh, we must have hit black ice or fell asleep at the wheel. Or, but funny, he never hit the brake running 90 into the piling on the interstate. And high-risk things with no backup, no vest. And again, nobody's really looking at that because we're not talking about it enough. And departments really don't want to talk about it. Chiefs especially don't want right. to talk about it. I agree. Absolutely. They just they want to cover it up and push it under the rug and pretend like it never happened and, and then move on to another agency and go be a chief somewhere else. And, and I, I've seen that happen here, and it's just um, it's, it's unbelievable because this is reality, and it's not going to go away, mm-hmm. and we need to address it full front and center and we need to make this the number one priority because you know we spend if you look at an officer's career we spend hundreds if not thousands of hours training on firearms def tech use of force arrest control techniques but how much time do we spend on ourselves because we are our number one own threat is ourselves we are more likely to die by our own hands than the hands of another so why aren't we spending more time to address that and to combat that sure 
Hey, there's a Chiefs position open here January 1st. If you're interested, we'll back you 100%. <laughs> I, am, I am fully retired and living life to the fullest. It was worth a try. That's right. <laughs> it was it worth a fun. shot. <laughs> It's funny you bring that up because uh, last night I actually met with two of my buddies from the police academy. They're still both working at different agencies, and they invited a couple other police officers I didn't know. We're sitting around this table, you know, having cigars, hanging out, and they're talking about, like, what's going on at work. And I was just like, thank (laughs) God I am retired. I am so glad that I'm no longer. As much Uh, as I love that job, Yep. but things have changed so much and they've changed for the worse yes that i could not imagine being out there right now today in a black and white it's yeah. just no way and then add the consent decrees and the doj coming oh in and the federal court oh my gosh <laughs> oh it's just a fun yeah. time here in maricopa <laughs> county come on over we'll show you what it's all about <laughs> it's funny that you said that because last last thursday i was out with some friends of mine from my old department and we are sitting there having a drink and a cigar, and they're talking about stuff going on. And I'm like, oh, my God, I am so happy. I am no longer doing that job. Exactly. Yeah, it's really, it's really sad. The targeting of senior officers out here over really nothing. <laughs> and it, it, it absolutely makes no sense because everybody's short-staffed. But it seems like they just – some of them are just gunning for – if you have – several agencies, but one in particular, if you have 17 years or more, you have a target on your back by this administration that they're they're going to get rid of you. And you just go, why? <laughs> to what end? Yeah, it's crazy. It's like they're trying to burn the place down or something, but um, only if I can lock them in it. <laughs> Probably shouldn't well, say we, we, eat our, we eat our own better than anybody. That, that's mm-hmm. the fact yeah. of the matter. And, um, you know, one thing that really surprised Doc Springer and I is that the admin betrayal or institutional betrayal, that's actually what pushes officers over the edge into committing yep. suicide. It's not the horrific scenes that we see and deal with. Yeah, that causes issues, but it's when our family, our blue family turns their back on us when we need them most. Sure. That's what pushes us over the edge. And, and I found, and again, I get messages every single day from literally all over the world and that part of the book is what is resonating most mm-hmm. with people because it's not talked about because, you know, when we get in trouble or something happens, we're ordered not to discuss it with anybody, yep. not to talk about it. But then you learn that everyone next to you is also getting screwed, yep. you <laughs> right. know, but no, no one's talking about it. And, and that's this toxic culture. And I don't know why that is, but like, again, we eat our own better than anybody and we need to be supportive. We need to be a true family. And we're not. We've lost I mean, leadership. Right. There are no leaders. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. This is not no, about leadership. Absolutely. This is supervision of Only, people. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because we contract with uh, some of the associations or unions out here. And the way it is set up, they act, even if they're admonished, they can still talk to us because it's anonymous with no notes. I was a litigation paralegal 15 years. We even have it set up at one that I'm part of the legal team. So that that attorney-client privilege part even locks in. And so awesome. I couldn't be – plus I'm old and I go, I don't know, unless you have audio and videotape, I don't know what you're talking about. You prove it. Um, but it's but you're right. It, that is the hardest part to accept because I think people go into law enforcement realizing a lot of the public's not going to like them. Right. You know, but you sure as heck don't expect your sergeant, lieutenant, commanders, chiefs, assistant chiefs to be the ones driving the knife in – and all of the stuff with body cam being reviewed, looking for language, 
You know, I said, we've removed the sick humor, the ability to use the healthy, sick, dark humor that officers have used forever. Um, because we found studies that show when you use sick humor, the body sends a message to the brain, this has no power over me. So things with children were the things that always filled up the psychological garbage can. But now with body cam, everything does. The paranoia, Absolutely. all of it. And it is, and then it creates the sleep issues, and then you are, now, now we're in trouble already. You know, you talk about the betrayal from your own agency and and. One of the biggest things that I remember about your book that really pissed me off was the email from the chief when you were supposedly retiring in good standing, but it sure didn't come across that way from that email, did it? No, that, yeah. So I I had a buddy who sent me a screenshot of the email, and the email made it sound like I was fired. I mean, it literally. (laughs) We um, have a stress coach that happened too. uh, Yeah. Mm -hmm. And usually what I should say is, you know, when most officers retire, the chief actually will put together a special email. They'll do like a memorandum and it will have like all your career accomplishments, like awards. You know, it's basically a big thank you. And it goes out. It's not just the police department, but it goes out to the entire city. city. So every city employee gets this email. Well, when mine came out, um, it was, I believe, one sentence, maybe two sentences max, but it just said that. Um, I was no longer employed and, you know, wish him best or something like that. It was kind of like, you know, what the fuck? Like I literally (laughs) gave my life to this agency and the way I read it was like, man, this guy got fired. Like, don't let this guy anywhere near the PD. Like you see him, report him. Like, you know, like (laughs) confiscate his his ID. And it was just like, yep. and, And the thing was not to brag, but like, I was a go-getter. Like I led every single team I was ever on. Like I gave my all every single day and I accomplished so much, but that didn't matter. None of it mattered. And How many years did you do me. before medical retirement? I did 14 years okay. with the city of Walnut Creek. Yep. Yeah. 14 years of my life. And, yep. and I just, I gave it all every single day, you know, but at the end it didn't matter. It was literally, you know, they, if I wasn't there, fill in that position they didn't want me at all and they weren't going to be patient enough for me to get better and that's the thing is that i was on a track getting better i was doing everything i could because i did want to go back to work that was my plan it was all i knew and then this admin betrayal just came in and it literally knocked me off my feet and that was literally that was it that was the final breaking straw where i realized that I can't do this job anymore. But if my agency would have wrapped their arms around me mm-hmm. and supported me and given me the time and the space that I needed to heal and to get better, I'd still be working there today. Yeah. Let me ask you this if you, because I haven't, and maybe I've just been oblivious to it, but we have an agency here that if you are put out on admin leave for any reason, a email goes out to the entire city that you are locked out of the building. You are denied access. Unfortunately, that happens everywhere. Um, I have a lot of friends, like I said, that still work in law enforcement. And, yeah, it's a, it's basically a quick email that says, you know, Sergeant so-and-so um, is no longer allowed access to the building. And mm-hmm. it actually usually says if you see them, make sure you report that to a supervisor. <laughs> oh, let's not. Uh, okay. Uh, wait, hey, edit that part out because you're going to give some people some ideas here that I don't need right now. Because the thing about it is you might be going out on an, on an IA for uh, an ethics issue, 
but it also but everybody assumes it's a post-traumatic stress issue of your suicidal because that's typically what they associate it to and so now to me we're getting into HIPAA issues of implying something that isn't necessarily true I don't know why that has to go out other than this chief believes if you're suicidal it means you're homicidal and there's absolutely zero statistics ever to prove that officers have been homicidal and then suicidal but never the other way around and that's where Absolutely. some of it comes from, yeah. and that goes back to nobody talks about that in the academy, do they? <laughs> in that basic class of, hey, here's what's going to happen to you. Uh, that, that is, that's outrageous, and I don't know why it's allowed. I agree. Yeah, it only makes things much, much worse. He and I need to teach together. You and I need to get a group of, of administrators together and lock them in. They don't get to come out till they agree with us. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I hope our audience will read this book. And you said it's audio also? Yeah. Yeah, so it's um, hardcover, paperback, Kindle, and the audiobook. So the audiobook actually came out a year after the book first got released. And I wish we would have done done it sooner, but... Mm -hmm. The Audible is in our own voice, and it nice. is not your typical Audible. It is absolutely filled with emotion and power, and it's it's going to knock your socks off. And I know you said you haven't had time to read books, but I'm going to tell you right now. And also, I want to say Dave Grossman did the forward for yeah. the books. That yeah. should give you an idea. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But you need to listen to Listen to this book, all right? When you're driving or doing what you're doing, yep. this book will knock your socks off. I guarantee it. Yeah, now that I know it's audio, because Tom and I are headed south to Bisbee next week, and then we've got to be in Yuma. It's like a four-day trip south. <laughs> Go, we're heading to the border. Look out, border, we're coming. Um, shut, but it's shut down. Don't worry about it. We're all safe. I've, yeah, I've, right. I've almost driven Tom across the border with guns in the car. That was a fun day. Yeah. Um, yeah. Letting <laughs> Yeah. And Border Patrol, even though we've taught Border Patrol all over, they tell us they could not help yep. us. So You're yeah. on your own. Yeah, that wasn't very comforting. But, um, yes, absolutely, That now that I know that it's audio, that will definitely be something that we'll listen to. 100%. And I'm glad awesome. you all do it yourselves. That's something I think yeah. Grossman is, is really good at. I think the authors have to be the ones to read well, it. then you understand the inflection. Absolutely. You know, because you, you yeah. will say, you'll read something much differently than than I would if I was the voice yes. of your book, you know. I, I just can't Absolutely. relate everything that you went through. Yeah. See, so. I need to just do an audio. Grossman's been on me 30 years to write a book, and I'm like, some of us work. Some <laughs> of us don't have those times. We don't get to go to our mountain cabin up in Minnesota there, Dave, and write our books. But um, I need to just do an audio book because yeah. most of our population yes. doesn't really read because they're ADD and ADHD, but they'll listen. <laughs> but they will listen. So. Yes. Uh, Joel, we have a new Absolutely. project for you. We're just going to an audio book. He's shaking his head. He's like, nope, not going to happen, Susan. <laughs> I've done this once. <laughs> no, we will be listening to your book next week. Absolutely. and uh, Awesome. Yeah, really glad you've written it and that this doctor, that y'all have a different perspective uh, especially from the mental health side of it. And it's just a shame we can't get all licensed mental health to feel that way because too many of them f have said to me, I'd rather save the law enforcement officer's life than their job. And I go, that shows me you don't understand the industry because sometimes the job is the only thing 
that they have that keeps them from doing it. And you, you can't look at it that way. It's got to be a combined effort that then they make the decision if they stay in it, retire, or just get out, whatever. It, you know, but when you don't give them that option, that's not a good plan. Yeah. And that's what's perceived by so many in law enforcement all over. And it's just a, a sad reality that we have to fight and try to change. And that's what we're doing as stress coaches. Because once they come to us and they trust us because we're not documenting, then they tend to trust us to go to vetted uh, mental health people. We have a psychologist here that's been with military and law enforcement over 40 years that they all adore. And then you can get them to open up and understand you can go here and here's why. And that's what we've got to do more of. Absolutely. Well, this has been a real honor and an eye-opener because we've really run into very few people that have had the same philosophy I've had for 31 years. And your jar, when you see my garbage can analogy, you'll understand we (laughs) it it explains post-traumatic stress injury and the signs and symptoms at the early stages compared to your garbage at home. And um, so you have his email. Yes, I do. And so Tom will send you that. We have departments around the country that are actually posting this in their briefing rooms for officers awesome. to be able to see and uh and it it's a light bulb moment for many of them and they go that makes sense and can't wait to see it yeah so we will we will get that sent out to you uh, any more books in your future no books um i did we did have a documentary that came out recently called residual which is a very powerful documentary actually a lot of first responders are involved in it it's on youtube so if, okay. if listeners hmm. Or watchers, um, just pull up Residual. It's um, by Doug Haynes is the producer, the director. Very well done. Um, It shows like alternate forms of therapy as well and treatment and just very, very powerful, well done documentary. And it's free. Awesome. You can literally pull it up on YouTube and and, and watch it yourself. So uh, my other other hope is that someday this book actually gets turned into a screenplay Mm -hmm. and it gets turned into a huge movie. So that way this message can get out to the entire world and into to to many more people because that's what this is about is more reach more audience and and that's what we need is keep spreading this message and and that's why we do these interviews that's why we're having this conversation sure right we've got got to keep spreading the word and so that's my hope someday is that everyone gets to hear and see this message how long is the documentary on youtube it's It's only 93 minutes oh okay good okay yeah we'll yeah. yeah we'll make sure all that is posted when this episode goes up, that all of that is in the little description. Joelle handles all of that for us. And, uh, you know, let us know if you're in the Phoenix area, uh, anytime Absolutely. speaking, whatever, uh, and we'll do the same. And I did look it up. I was in Santa Rosa in Sonoma County. Okay, yeah, that's not far. So um, that's probably about an hour. Okay. Santa Rosa is about an hour from where I live, so mm-hmm. um, not very far at all. It's a beautiful area, wine country. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, you got the coast and vineyards and whatnot, and so, yeah, great area. Awesome. Well, please keep in touch. You know, let us know if there's any way we can help you on the end, because uh, the movie idea, of course, we got to keep those winers over there off strike, you know, if they're going <laughs> to get anything done, right? we'll go get back exactly. to, to this stuff. But, uh, but, yeah, if there's ever anything we can do, um you know, let us know. We Actually, one of our stress coaches, I'd love to get you guys talking because the same thing happened to him after 20-plus years. Yeah, 20, I think he was 
God, what, almost 22, I think. At least yeah. he was. Oh, no, I think it was almost 25 because he almost finished oh, drop. That's right. But he was wow. in a yeah, he was a SWAT uh, on a SWAT team that the point man right in front of him was killed in 1999. And he had the exact same. He was on vacation when his email went out. <laughs> he didn't even know he was retiring yet. Um, yeah, it was crazy. It was crazy. So he's a Marine. So we'll let Marine and Air Force talk. But, uh, <laughs> here we go again. Enlisted an officer. <laughs> yeah. no, you'll love Dan. He's awesome. Uh, but yeah, I'd like to get you guys talking. And you know, if you ever uh, think you'd like to be a stress coach at Under the Shield, let us know. We do a 40-hour certification. And our awesome. only requirement is that no one can be a mandated reporter. That's a different level of of the approach and uh but yeah it's uh it's something that we're seeing great results with that people are really utilizing and uh so yeah anything we can do to help or get you a part of under the shield we'd love to do it likewise thank you very much terrific well as we wrap things up here tom you want to give them our closing here yes um so we are available for any first responder, military, veteran, and their families. You can call us anytime, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Um, you can reach us at 855-889-2348. If you hit extension one, uh, we will not have your phone number. So please hang on the line. It will roll to the first available stress coach. Um, and then you can talk to that person at that point. If you want to reach Susan directly, you can hit extension two and you'll get her. But most likely you'll probably get her voicemail. You will get my voicemail because <laughs> I don't know how to use the phone system half the time. So, yeah, you'll get the voicemail. <laughs> so you can reach her by her cell phone yes i prefer you reach out to me on my cell uh 334-324-3570 and i'm telling you now text me during the day call at night i check text whether i'm teaching in session here on the podcast whatever it is i'm doing uh you'll get a faster response that way uh, but at night, I always call because, again, I am old and I may not hear the little beep beep from the text. So <laughs> please feel free to call uh, anytime, all night long. Don't ever say I didn't want to bother you. Bother me. Just don't do what some narcotics officers here did after I spoke at a narcotics conference and they called me at two in the morning and I answered and all I heard was, damn, she does answer the phone at two in the morning. They're drunk in a bar taking bets as to whether I'll answer my phone because uh, I'll answer and then we'll have a different conversation. That's then right. you'll need Tom for stress coaching. So. And if you want to reach me, you can hit uh, extension four on that 855 number or you can reach me on my cell phone at 480-861-6574 and you can call or text either way uh, for me. Um, but the biggest message here we have for you is if you are struggling um, to please reach out to somebody. Yes. Uh, we're here for you. Um, we will get you a stress coach that fits with you. Um, however, we whatever we need to do, we will do for you. Um, but we know it's a tough that call to first make. First call, it's hard. But once you make it, the healing can begin, and you'll be surprised how much better you feel. Yeah, we're not a referral source no. here. Um, we have lots of tools, lots of things in our toolbox. But, for example, Joelle, our producer, is one of our stress coaches. Um, I, ha I really have a hard time saying <laughs> adult <laughs> child of a law enforcement officer, but he works, uh, has done some amazing things with other teenage kids and stuff of law enforcement 
you have to have lived that yeah. to do it. And that's uh, a big part of what he does for us here, besides playing with this colorful board for the, the podcast. And yeah, <laughs> right, that's it. Um, but yeah, you know, and again, we can't uh, emphasize enough it is not about confidentiality, it's about anonymity, because confidentiality is a legal term. And there's always three exceptions to that that term. It 100% confidential doesn't mean the three exceptions have been waived. We will not ask your name. We will not ask who you work for. We do tell you, though, if you call us and you hit extension one, you're going to get a stress coach. Let it ring. It'll roll to the first available. But if we get disconnected, we do not have your number. Make sure that before you hang up with us, we have your number, you have our cell, whichever coach you're talking to, uh, because we have no other way of calling you back. Right. And we want to make sure that people don't um, get cut off because of the moon doesn't line up in the right house <laughs> in the desert or wherever we are. And, uh, but we're, and families, please, we can't emphasize enough, you're part of this lifestyle. I've been there, done it, did it 20 years. And you need to call for yourselves right? as well. Um, so reach out, parents, reach out, uh, brothers and sisters that are struggling with things because they don't know how to help their first responder or military loved one, reach out. We can probably give you some good suggestions. I've done this for a little bit. You know, just a little. A little bit. You know, 31 years, I've learned a lot. <laughs> probably learned more than I've taught, but... Uh, please let us know how we can help and reach out to us. Uh, that extension three on the 855 number actually rolls to one of our stress coaches in Alabama who was a fire marshal, fire, retired firefighter, and has been with Under the Shield for many, many years. So you can get any of us. But you all hurt my feelings. If you want to talk to Tom, you want to talk to Joel or another stress coach, I'll be happy to connect you, and, and we'll do whatever you need. It's not about us. It's about you. So Never fear that anyone's going to breach confidentiality and, and give up any information about you to anyone because we won't have enough to give it up. <laughs> That's right. And I sure as heck won't remember. So don't be offended if you call me and go, Susan, I just talked to you 20 minutes ago. Did you really? <laughs> well, okay, let's start all over again. <laughs> Michael, thank you so much for taking the time out to be with us. Thank you for your service, both from the military standpoint and from law enforcement um, we need more people like you, and sadly, the industry is beating itself up, and people don't want to get into this. And I think we can all understand, but we got to have them because we see what it's doing <laughs> right there in your own backyard. That's right. It's uh, it's tough. So please, please reach out to us. God bless all of you. Thank you for the sacrifices that you make. God bless you, your families, and this great nation that we live in. Come back and see us next week.